Hello everyone, it's August 16th, 2022. So as we approach Artemis 1, you might be wondering what to expect. Well, we're going down the list. How this first journey to the moon will play out. Of course, the current timetable depends on launching on schedule, but let's assume it does. And now let's launch the show and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 372 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And no Dennis this week. He is currently conked out. He says that his alarm didn't go off. I suspect he slept through it. <laughs> but uh, Dennis has been working super hard this week. He's not only doing his day job, but he's also attending a small sat conference uh, or convention or whatever. Uh, no, I think I think it's a conference. And uh, he's already done one interview. Has he done more than one? So, yeah. So Dennis has been working his tail off. and. Uh, he uh, decided he was not going to show up today, and I heartily agree with him. Like he's uh, he's been a busy person, so it's just David and I. Yep. But yeah, so at the top of the show, um, we talked last week about Maston Space System, and I guess mm-hmm. we have a little bit of an update as to what's going on there. So what might happen is that there is that, well, what has happened is that there has been an offer from Astrobotic of one point four million. A $4.5 million bid for the assets from Astrobotic Technologies. Yeah. And then 1.4 is right. They're also offering a $1.4 million uh, debtor in possession loan, which basically allows the company to survive while they're going through uh, bankruptcy proceedings. Mm -hmm. And so this is Chapter 11 bankruptcy, which is a, a reorganization, but it, it looks like it's a real hard chapter 11. It, it looks like the, the company is not going to be recognizable um, when it comes out. Um, but there, there's a term that I think is really interesting. It's called uh, the dark horse uh, bitter, the dark horse follower. What is it? Oh, stalking horse. Thank you. <laughs> Colin says Darth horse, which is unhelpful, but funny. <laughs> and uh, Deathkin in the chat says stalking horse. Right. So the, the stalking horse better uh, establishes a, the cheapest bid. Um, and so what, what happened is uh, Astrobotic put in the bid and then Mastin goes, yeah, okay, we can start there. It's not an accepted bid, but basically no one's going to be able to bid less than that. So it'll be really interesting to see if other people um, get into the the business of of buying out uh, a company that, by some definitions, has failed. I, I think it's mm-hmm. really unfair to say that Mastin's failed. Uh, just like last week, I would have said that it was it was wrong to say that Astra had failed because neither company has. But what what's really fascinating to me about this bid is if they put in. Uh, you know, six and a half million dollars, seven million dollars, something like that. They get all of Mastin's assets or the vast majority of them, which includes, you know, just a lot of rocket technology and um, maintenance facilities and all that. But they also get a one, a $14 million launch credit. Um, Mastin had already paid SpaceX $14 million uh, to go to the moon. Um, they still need to pay another four and a half million dollars. So it's, you know, it's not a free launch punch card, but it's darn close. They're like one punch away from having a, a free launch. And right. So like, you know, six, seven million dollars to get 14 million dollars in credit and a bunch of hardware and, um, intellectual property. Um, and hopefully, presumably a bunch of, 
employees who already work really, really well in a team. Like th this could be a, a real steal depending on how the rest of the bankruptcy proceedings go. Like you never know, but the point of chapter 11 is to give the company a chance to shed its debts. Um, you know, normally they're paying those debts by selling off pretty much everything that they have that they can convince the judge they they get to keep whatever they can convince the judge that they need to continue uh basically and they have to you know develop a, a recovery plan um that that they're then held accountable to but like the point of this is to try to get them through as intact as possible and so depending on how how all that goes you know astrobotic paying to buy their assets that money then goes to their creditors who knows? Astrobotic may wind up having to pay more money to the creditors to to get them through. But like, this could be a fantastic uh, a fantastic bargain. Six seven million dollars for a fourteen million dollar launch credit plus assets. Like, it, it could be really good uh, for Astrobotic. So one thing I'm wondering about the auction of the assets from Aston. So how does this work? Are we talking about just a bid for everything? Because if the 4.5 million is meant to, you know, hold that as the minimum, then what happens? Like, I'm just kind of trying to envision how this actually works. Are we talking about like, kind of like an auction where they're just selling up all kinds of random stuff to different people or something? Yeah. Or yeah. if that does not come to a grand total of, you know, $4.5 million or more, what happens then? Do those, you know what I mean? Like, are, are like all those bids invalidated and then it all just goes to Astrobotic? Oh, you mean like selling it off piecemeal rather than in bulk? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. It probably depends on, on the actual proceedings. I know that sometimes businesses are sold in bulk and some, you know, their assets are sold in bulk and sometimes they're not. Since this is chapter 11, not like chapter seven, I don't know if astrobotic is also look at, you know looking to purchase or even able to purchase their intellectual property uh, able to pick up uh their employee contracts like i don't know what exactly is going on here um and i i suspect the people involved don't know yet i think that still has to be settled um but yeah i don't i don't know if somebody can come in and say okay i want this thing and that thing and figure out a way to to bargain for it um but I suspect because somebody's already put in a bid for everything, anybody else who wants to buy assets is going to have to buy it all as a package. Just a suspicion. I don't know. I, I'm not yeah. a, <laughs> I'm not a, a bankruptcy geek. I'm a space geek. Artemis One Look Ahead. So the Planetary Society published a little. Um, schedule of what's to come in the coming weeks uh, for Artemis 1 for that mission. And um, I guess it's just to kind of keep us up to date on exactly... Yeah, it's a roundup. Yeah, just kind of like what to expect. And we're, we're two weeks away, so it, it seems like it's a good a good thing to do. Two weeks away, so that launch date is on the 29th. Yeah, it's finally almost here, <laughs> yeah. if that makes sense. Uh, finally almost. So this takes place over the course of 43 days, actually. Um, and this is an uncrewed mission, I guess. You know, that should go without saying, but just to clarify it on uh, that point. So on flight day one, uh, you have launch, 8.5 minutes to the initial orbit. Uh, from there, the interim cryogenic propulsion stage does its translunar burn um, at T plus two hours, and then there is a separation of the spacecraft, and then uh, flight days two through five are the outbound transit, uh, during which there will be 10 CubeSats deployed 
One of those tens is Nia Scout, which is a solar sail spacecraft, um, and it's going to 2020 GE, which I assume is a near-Earth asteroid. Yeah, it's the smallest asteroid that we'll have ever visited. Oh, that's kind of a cool record. The smallest one we'll have ever visited. Yeah. I kind of like that. Um, and then flight days six through nine are, well, so you have transit, see the outbound transit, then transit to lunar orbit. Is this just like, you mean like, uh, the orbital insertion kind of, if it I even don't know is one? How, yeah. I don't know how there, there is an orbital insertion. Um, and I, I think, I, I think transit to lunar orbit is the time lowering the periapsis cause they're, or the per, perilune cause they're, they're going into a really high DRO. So. I don't, you know, you wouldn't think that they would spend three days (laughs) burning into that orbit, but maybe it takes, maybe they burn and then it takes three days to get up to circularize their orbit or something like that. Okay. Yeah. And so that's flight days six through nine. Um, And then 10 through 23 is actual lunar orbit. So I guess they are going into orbit, right? I I was just wondering because yeah, it's, um, it's for 43 days. So that just occurred to me. It has to be going into lunar orbit. Right. So that is a 111 kilometer paraloon. Uh, before DRO and then either 0.5 or 1.5 orbits. Um, did you clarify that? Cause I think you were looking to figure it's, that no, out. It's, right? it's, it's one or the other. They get to choose how long they're going to be there. Oh, okay. Cool. So, and then from there, uh, days 24 through 34 is, uh, the exit of lunar orbit. And then days 35 through 42 is the return transit. And then on day 43 is the splashdown. So that's a pretty eventful. Um, what, like month and a half, really. Yeah. Uh, so that's a, so yeah, so this first mission like really takes place over a longer period of time than I would have thought. And so that's what's going to happen on, or that's what begins on the 29th of this month, assuming that, you know, nothing goes wrong, uh, before launch. So <laughs> it seems to me that it's quite likely that that, that you know, that something will kind of hold them back, in which case yeah. we need to talk about the flight termination system. So this is interesting. So of all the things that can cause you to have to, you know, roll back to the VAB, um, I don't know how often we've, we've ever talked about this. I'm maybe never, right? The FTS? Yeah. Like, like this being something that will limit you on, the pad as far as how long you can stay out there. Yeah, I don't think we've talked about it. And it's it is a crazy little timing dance they have to do. Yeah, because I mean there's so many other dances like that having to do with fueling and you know the actual payload itself. Sometimes that's on some kind of a timer or whatever that's you know time sensitive. But in this case it's the flight termination system. And then also again because we never really looked into it, it runs on batteries. Which I suppose makes sense because, right. you know, you kind of think of it kind of like a smoke alarm. You don't want it to be attached to the internal. This needs to be completely independent of the vehicle, really. Yeah. And, and the Eastern range basically says that it has to be <laughs> like you, you don't get a yeah. choice because the, the range says you got. Yeah. So the, the FTS system that they're talking about is not the like deck cord running down the side of the vehicle that's actually going to explode and, and tear the vehicle apart if necessary. It's the it's the electronics with the battery and all that. Um, and so that, uh, that electronics package is installed in the intertank section, uh, of the core stage. And they put it in a place where they can only access it in the VAB. I'm assuming it's because they don't have a arm that's set up to swing out and give you access to a hatch. But then, yeah, the numbers here start to get a little weird. And I think I've got it roughly figured out. And, um, David, uh, you kind of read what I wrote and you say it kind of makes sense. So let's go through this and see if we can okay. convince each other that, that we've got it figured out. So the Eastern range requires testing the FTS system 15 days prior to launch. 
Now, that's not exactly 15 days because they've got three launch uh, opportunities within this window, and they are not going to be testing it three times. My assumption was that they needed to test within 15 days of launch, but I, th I think this is actually a, a minimum. They have to test at least 15 days prior to launch because the reporting that I read in, in a couple of different places said that testing uh, the FTS system starts a 20-day clock. So 15 days has to be a minimum, right? Um, so the 20-day clock is driven by the batteries in the FTS system. Um, they can... They're currently certified for 20 days. And what's kind of cool is they actually worked with the Eastern Range to get them recertified for 25 days. And so... The way that the numbers work out, uh, I believe that they have to test it 15 days prior. So they have to install the system and test it while they're in the VAB. Then they can roll out to the pad over those 15 days. Uh, obviously, it doesn't take that long. So they can roll out whenever they want to in those 15 days. And then as those 15 days are up, then they're good to go. And so if you've got a 20-day expiration on those batteries, that means you've got five days on the pad uh, that you can launch. Maybe it's the other way. They install it, and then they're allowed to test it five days after that, but I, I don't think that's right, and I don't think the numbers work out that way. So uh, the launch opportunities that they have are uh, August 29th, September 2nd, and September 5th. Um, the original 20-day battery certification supported the first two. So that's a four days between those two opportunities. So a, a total window of four days, uh, which makes sense with the, you know, 20 minus 15 equals five. But there's not enough time after the second opportunity on, on 9-2 uh, that there's not enough time between that and 9.5 to get back to the VAB, reinstall the batteries, retest them, and roll back out. Um, and so the new certification gets them that final window, which is a total window of seven days. Um, potentially, they could support a window of 10 days if it's now 25 minus 15. Um, so I think I've got this right. Uh, do you see any holes in my logic, David? No. And I think, yeah, the first scenario that you laid out there sounds like the correct one. I know you had that second one that you said, um, but yeah, like, so you test it. To me, the way I thought of it was you test it in the VAV, uh, you start the clock, you roll it out, and then then from there, it's 15 days un until launch. And then if you need to go to backup launch, my assumption was just that, okay, it's been tested within 15 days, and that included like any resets because it does, after all, have a 20-day – it's certified for 20 days, and it's not that they're – it's not that they want it tested for the battery life, but rather just, uh, you know, the viability of the component. At least that's what I was assuming. So if that's the case, then, you know, you can do with, you know, a five-day window or like whatever because it was recently tested. Um, in this case, it has to be 15 days. But it's just that I assumed that, like, you wouldn't test it, like, two months prior and then just say, yeah, we've tested this before. It's good to go. Like, you don't want that to happen. So I just assumed that there was, like, a little bit of – a tiny bit of room in there where you could have that five-day window if you had to reset. But um, it, it sucks to make all this speculation uh, mm. and just, just not know. But, you know, what are you going to do? So if, if they don't manage to get 
uh, up into the air on 9.5, the third opportunity in this window. They have two additional windows laid out. Um, the first one is September 20th to October 4th. So that's what, like two or three weeks later. Um, and then after that would be October 17th to October 31st. These are both very long windows, so they probably have multiple opportunities in there and they'll pick which group they want to target. Yeah, so I think that we might very well be looking at, I mean, well, I don't know. So like, what are your thoughts? Do you think that the launch will happen uh, at the end of this month? I have no I idea. Mean, yeah, I know. You have, yeah, I, I figured you'd say that and it's true. Like, there's no way that we can know, but... I, w I would love for it to happen on the first launch opportunity, but also yeah. like, I kind of want it to go on the third opportunity because then we get to see two reasons why the launch was delayed. And, you know, it's it's fun to see things go a little wrong, but not very wrong. <laughs> All right, so let's do three short and sweets uh, this week. No Dennis, so I'll just do the first one. So Starlink hits bad weather. The Russian ASAT test that destroyed Cosmos 1408 in November of last year is causing problems for Starlink. Since the ASAT tests, there have been over 6,000 close approaches that have put the satellites within 10 kilometers of debris and requiring over 1,700 avoidance maneuvers. Starlink's ability to autonomously avoid such hazards has made this problem manageable, but Comspock, an organization that tracks objects in North Orbit, has warned that the conjunction squall currently affecting Starlink may eventually drift into the International Space Station's path. Next, Antares gets an update. Northrop Grumman and Firefly Aerospace are teaming up to build a new Antares first stage, as well as an entirely new launch vehicle. Firefly will be upgrading the Antares first stage with seven Miranda engines, as well as improving the stage's tanks and structure with Firefly-made composites. This will give the Antares the ability to deliver 5,000 kilograms of cargo to the ISS with Cygnus, instead of the current maximum of 1,250 kilograms. This partnership will additionally lead to the development of an entirely new, as yet unnamed, medium-lift launch vehicle, which is expected to make its debut in 2025. Finally, SSLV falls short. The inaugural launch of India's small satellite launch vehicle failed to reach orbit last week when its kickstage malfunctioned. The VTM, or Velocity Trimming Module, that was meant to carry its payload to its final orbit cut off one-tenth of a second after ignition. This left its payload, an Earth observation satellite, and a student-built CubeSat in a 76 by 356 kilometer orbit. The satellites presumably re-entered over the Pacific Ocean. ISRO has not made any statement with further details regarding the cause of the SSLV kickstage malfunction, only that there was a, quote, failure of a logic to identify a sensor failure, but this may not be linked to the early engine cutoff. Uh, what that means exactly, we <laughs> we think we know. Failure of a logic to identify a sensor failure. Yeah. It's it's a little uh, all your base are belong to us. So, this week in spaceflight history. All right, yes, yeah, so we have all correct and all bonus point answers. So we have Leon Running Man, Michael Freeman, Cy Kyle, Hydrek, and The Greek. And the 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 clue was missing top, which I just think of as like, you know, someone's like missing a top, you know, like that's just yeah. what like kind of what I think of. But what does that really mean? <laughs> All right. So this week in spaceflight history is the 21st of August, 1933. It was the date that we lost communication with Mars Observer. So Mars Observer was a broad spectrum survey mission. Uh, they were intending, you know, 
spoiler alert, we already said we lost communication. They were intending to study the topology as well as the gravitology. I think that's a made up word, um, but to study the <laughs> gravitational field, um, and the, the shape of the gravitational field of Mars, uh, the magnetic field of Mars, the surface composition, um, as well as the weather and atmosphere of Mars, all the way up to the ionosphere. Um, this was really just supposed to be a what the heck is Mars even kind of mission. Um, and their intention was to characterize at least a full year of the Martian environment uh, in preparation for future missions. David Evans, uh, a project manager for Mars Orbiter or Mars Observer, said uh, the first humans to set foot on that planet will certainly use Mars Observer maps to and rely on its geologic and climactic data. Climatic data. Uh, it, it turned out to be anticlimactic data. And, and so, like, yeah, they, they really wanted to set out this, this rich data set. Um, I think, uh, talking about human setting foot, uh, relying on data from 1993 is a little ambitious. Um, but, you know, who knows? We, we really did want to go to Mars, uh, right after the moon for a little bit at least. And, uh, Mars Observer was going to be this like superhero mission. It was built with as many Earth orbit heritage parts as well as like, Earth orbit satellite techniques as they possibly could. Um, they really wanted this thing to be uh, an Earth observation satellite that happened to be at Mars. Um, and I think a lot of that was trying to reduce the cost. Um, but unfortunately, um, it went over budget and it actually had two instruments removed uh, and it flew with uh, seven remaining instruments. Um, one of those instruments was really cool. It was actually a radio package, uh, built by, uh, the French agency, the, the French space agency, CNES. And it was, uh, specifically there to support the upcoming Mars 94 mission, uh, which spoiler alert also didn't make it to Mars, but, um, they were going to have, um, I believe it was two landers with, um, like, insight-like mole probes that would dig under the surface, and um, they wanted to use Mars Observer as an additional relay back to Earth. Now, uh, Mars Orbiter was originally planned to fly on shuttle, which I just love interplanetary missions uh, that launch off of a shuttle. Uh, it, the shuttle really was supposed to be the space truck. But not only did it not launch on shuttle, uh, but it actually launched two years later than originally planned. They actually pulled Mars Observer off of shuttle to allow Galileo, Magellan, and Ulysses, uh, all three to fly uh, on shuttle instead. They, they were already backed up uh, due to the Challenger disaster, and so uh, Mars Observer kind of defers to them. So instead, um, on September 25th, 1992, it launched on a Titan III. And what's really cool is uh, Mars Observer flew with a TOS, a transfer orbit stage, um, which was sort of like a PAM, a payload assist module, which flew like we flew more PAMs than I can count on shuttle. And TOS was kind of a, a PAM alternative. And even though it was designed to fly in the shuttle cargo bay, they actually kept it for Titan. Uh, it's really neat that they had this, this transfer stage that could just go along with the vehicle and, and sit on top of a Titan. 
Uh, this was one of two TOS launches. The other TOS um, was for the Advanced Communications Technology Satellite, which did indeed uh, fly on Discovery. Um, so, you know, they, somebody at some point spent a lot of time and energy designing and building TOS, and only two ever flew, and only one of them flew on a shuttle. A little disappointing. But uh, both TOS upper stages uh, had successful burns, um, and uh, Mars uh, Observer definitely had a, a successful burn. Um, after separation, it did this partial deployment. It's a, it's a really cool configuration. So the the Mars Observer vehicle is is kind of a cool kind of a cool setup. So it has uh, four things that stick off of it. Uh, one is the solar arrays. The, the solar array is uh, a grid of two by three panels. So six panels in total. And each pair, um, has one static panel and then one panel that folds, uh, 180 degrees. And so, uh, this partial deployment included flipping out two of those pairs so that four out of the six solar panels, uh, were exposed to the sun. Um, they also folded out the high gain antenna. The high gain antenna is on on a boom as well, um, or or is deployable. I don't I don't think it's quite fair to call it a boom because they had two actual like instrument booms. Um, one held the gamma ray spectrometer, and the other one held the magnetometer. And so those booms folded out but didn't extend. And that's uh, mo set for its cruise stage. So before I talk about the failure. Let's talk about what should have happened. Um, it would have entered into Mars orbit. It would have lowered its initial capture uh, over the course of three months to get down to a circular 400 kilometer orbit. Its primary mission was planned to begin in November of 1993. And after it had lowered its orbit and before it began its primary mission, it would have deployed that third solar panel. Um, it would have rotated the solar panel and the high gain antenna, um, sort of the arms that they're on. It would have rotated them out so that, uh, they actually wind up both facing basically the opposite direction uh, than they were set up during the cruise stage. And then it would have fully extended uh, the gamma ray and magnetometer booms. Right. So then its primary mission uh, begins at the end of 1993. And it was planned uh, to, to collect data for three years. And who knows how much longer it would have operated after that. My guess is not. I, I If this... If this failure hadn't happened, I don't think it would have been there for much longer. And when I get into it, I, I think, uh, I think you might agree with me, David. Okay. <laughs> so the, the loss of the mission happened three days before the orbit insertion burn. And like they're, they're doing prep for the burn and just suddenly communication's gone. They can't see the spacecraft and they never hear from it again. One moment is fine. The next moment is gone. And like, that seems super mysterious and weird. And like, since you don't have any telemetry data, um, after the failure, like, it seems like we're never going to know what happened, but it seems really obvious what did happen. And that's because I believe the last command, like the very last command was the command that started the vehicle pressurizing its propellant tanks, which seems highly suspect. Mm. Now, 
what makes all this even worse is that the high gain, uh, the, the transmitter for the high gain antenna gets switched off as they're bringing the propellant tanks up to pressure. I'm not a hundred percent sure why they, they say it's to protect the tubes from shock, but I don't think that there were any tubes like, like actual, like the vacuum tubes that, that do logic things. Like, I don't think there are any of those, like whatever it was before transistors. Um, I don't think there are any of those. So it must be, um, like the, the radio generating part of the device. And, and I don't know why powering it down would be particularly safe or safer, um, while they're, uh, while they're pressurizing the fuel tanks. So I, I think the team knew that, you know, once they had shut off that transmitter, when the vehicle didn't come back, something had gone wrong that had precluded the vehicle from coming back online. But just in case, uh, they sent commands every 20 minutes, um, hoping that whatever had failed had not kept the vehicle from turning its transmitter back on. And the hope was that maybe the thing is just pointed in the wrong direction. Uh, maybe it's spinning. And if it's spinning, maybe we can catch it with, uh, with a burst. And so I believe the command that they sent was turn on your radio, turn on your radio, turn on your radio. <laughs> um, just hoping that if it wasn't able to transmit, it would be able to receive, um, and it would be able to, uh, to, to do its thing. And there was a little bit of a hope that the vehicle was still going to be able to do its capture burn and that they would have time, uh, to solve the issue as it's in this high elliptical orbit. Uh, but no, nope, never heard back from it. Technically speaking, we don't know what happened. Uh, and technically speaking, uh, we don't know where the vehicle is. I, I don't know if we ever, uh, tracked something that agrees with its its likely uh orbit around the sun it it's pretty likely that it wasn't able to do the burn e even if the computer was still running um I, I think it almost certainly either burned up in the atmosphere uh depending on how low it's uh it's Mars was what it periarian uh depending mm -hmm. on how low it's periarian is but i think it actually got slung out uh back into into orbit around the sun. So, uh, of course, uh, an investigation board is convened and there, there's this, this great quote from, uh, Dr. Timothy Coffey, uh, chairman of the investigation board. He said, we were challenged to conduct an extraordinarily complex investigation in a, in which we had no hard evidence to examine nor communications with the spacecraft. Um, and yeah, that kind of sucks, but they, they came to a conclusion uh, that seems uh, the next best thing to ironclad. So they decided that what was most likely to have happened is that NTO nitrogen tetroxide, which is part of the, uh, that's, that's the oxidizer, right? It's usually NTO and MMH. And that's what it was in this case, uh, that the oxidizer probably leaked through a check valve and was able to leak back up towards the helium tank. And that this leak would have happened during the long cruise phase. The reason that they think that the leak happened is because they were using components that were designed and certified for earth orbit you know they're there to survive until uh, a communication satellite gets up into geostationary orbit or something not for the long cruise to mars and it seems really obvious 
And it's a little heartbreaking that that ultimately just came down to you used a part that wasn't intended for this mission. So I want to describe the the propellant system here. When I read about it, the image that popped into my head, whether it's helpful or not, is a bagel on a string. So on one end of the string, you have a helium tank. And on the other end of the string, you have an engine nozzle. The single helium tank pressurizes both of the propellant tanks. It kind of splits apart. Then the propellant tanks connect to the combustion chamber and you get the other side of the donut comes back together. You got the other end of the string. So the alternative to this would be having two different helium tanks, but uh, that's not a super reasonable thing to do for for such a small uh, propellant system. So the way this works is the helium tank is connected directly to the NTO tank. The line that goes off to the, the MMH tank is separated by uh, pyrotechnic valves. So these are valves that are going to stay shut absolutely for certain until you blow them. And then the helium can go ahead and pressurize the fuel tank. But if you just opened up the helium pressure valves, like told the regulator, hey, I, I need pressure, it, it would pressurize the, uh, the oxidizer tank. And I'm not 100% sure why this architecture was used. I, I don't think it's a particularly unusual architecture. But, you know, you might expect that they would have two sets of pyro valves, one for oxidizer, one for fuel. But going down to just one does 90% of the work um, with half of the components. So in any event, the way that this is set up, um, the leak wound up getting back far enough um, that when they pressurized it, I, I believe the, the oxidizer was actually blown into the MMA pipes, probably not all the way down to the tank, I don't think. But, you know, there, there was enough, uh, oxidizer backed up that even if they planned for a little bit of like backwash, this was like more than the system could handle. And so, yeah, <laughs> you mix, uh, you mix uh, NTO and MMH, and they do what they're <laughs> intended to do, and they burn. Likely, there wasn't enough mixing um, to do more than just rupture that line that's normally supposed to be filled with uh, helium. But, I mean, maybe there might have been. But what, what the board concluded was that the most likely thing is that it was just enough mix to rupture the line, and then you get um, MMH and helium spilling out of the propellant system that like that's already bad because uh, it means that you're not firing your engines but it gets a little worse because the way that the thermal blanket was set up probably made the off-axis thrust even worse i think it probably wound up directing uh, these escaping gases in one direction now having an mmh leak like straight out of the tank is already bad enough right it's is going to digest your spacecraft uh, in space but had that not happened the spin from the off-axis thrust would have been enough to uh just discharge the batteries the uh the solar panels aren't pointed at the sun they're not uh, making up as much charge as I normally would, and the spacecraft winds up dying. And if that wouldn't have happened, the high spin rate would have been enough to put the vehicle into contingency mode. Um, now, it sounds like contingency mode is not the same as 
what we think of today as a safe mode. Uh, I believe the contingency mode is sort of a softer sort of recovery mode that relies on some initial state in order to be effective. And one of the things in the, uh, in the initial state that it required was having the transmitter turned on because when the vehicle switches into contingency mode, it's not designed to ensure that the transmitter is turned on. Um, maybe, you know, turning the transmitter on when it's already on can lead to some sort of like over voltage situation that, that might be harmful. I'm, I'm not sure why they did this. And it doesn't really matter <laughs> because the vehicle was dead by like three different methods at that point. And yeah, it just, it sucks, uh, that a single failure could do so much damage. The board did cite a couple of, uh, possible other causes for the failure. Uh, they said that a, a short circuit in the regulated power bus might have caused uh, an issue. Um, the NTO tank itself could have ruptured uh, if there was a failure in the, the helium pressure regulator. Um, also, this is kind of interesting, uh, the pyro valves uh, might have wound up turning the NASA standard initiators that uh, actually started them off, it might have turned one of these standard initiators into a bullet that could have taken out some sort of critical system, uh, you know, like mm -hmm. a computer system or who knows, hit the, the transmitter tube and shattered it. I, I doubt it was that poorly shielded, but you know, um, and they think that one of these initiators might have actually been going fast enough in the right direction to have ruptured one of the two propellant tanks, uh, or maybe even one of the other propellant tanks. I think there were three different propellant systems. But in any event, the board is pretty sure that they picked the right cause. Um, and I, I totally think that they're justified in that certainty as as close to certainty as they could get. And so I found an interesting document that will be in the show notes, I'm sure, um, a whole mission failure investigation report. Volumes one, two, and three, it says, and it is long, um, but it does make reference to those tubes that we couldn't figure out. So as to why they turned off their transmitter just prior to pressurizing the propellant tanks, uh, the tubes that they're talking about that they didn't want to do damage to were they were wave tube amplifiers in the spacecraft telecommunication system. So the one thing that it doesn't really explain is why they would need to be turned off. It doesn't make sense to me what difference that would make, but they were afraid that if they were left on, then they would be damaged. So that's why they turn off the antenna and obviously that, you know, but like you said, it wouldn't make much of a difference. Like there was much more damage done to the spacecraft anyway. They ruptured a propellant tank and well, they blew up the spacecraft apparently. I don't know. Um, <laughs> they did some significant damage. Yeah. I, I think that thing was, was spinning pretty good as it, you mm -hmm. know, rusted aggressively. <laughs> yeah. But that does lead us to the clue. Uh, missing top is not top as in shirt. It's top as in, the toy. Um, so not only spinning, but also totally missing. All right. Well, that is this week in spaceflight history. Um, next week is the 23rd of August to the 29th of August. Uh, David, it's, it's your week. Do you have a clue? Uh, yes, I do. So the clue is for next week in 2001, when East meets West, it's a good thing. All right. So if you have a guess as to what that clue is in reference to, shoot us a tweet with the hashtag this week SF, uh, give us your guess 
And good luck, everybody. Good luck. All right, so let's just do three upcoming spaceflight events. Not a whole lot this week, just one launch. Uh, I guess possibly two, but we're, we only have one confirmed. Um, but the first event is on August 17th, which is a Russian spacewalk, and you can watch that on NASA TV. Uh, the coverage uh, begins at 9 a.m. This will last about 6 hours and 45 minutes. And the spacewalk will be Artemyev and Matveyev. And the spacewalk itself will begin at approximately 9.20, and that's Eastern Daylight Time. So keep that in mind, not uh, UTC. But it'll be a nice long spacewalk, so you can always tune in at any point during that and see what they're up to. All right, so the very next day will be coverage of um, SpaceX 25, the Cargo Dragon, uh, departing the space station and coming back home. So that's on August 18th. That's Thursday. The coverage begins at 10.45 a.m. Eastern Time. The undocking is scheduled for 11.05 a.m. Eastern Time. And uh, just like the spacewalk, you can watch that on NASA TV. After that, on August 19th, we have Starlink Group 427. Uh, so another batch of 53 Starlink satellites, uh, part of this massive mega constellation, which will hopefully avoid any uh, ASAT debris in the coming months. Right. And that will be launching at 1924 UTC from Space Launch Complex 40 or Slick 40 from Cape Canaveral. All right. So those are your upcoming spaceflight events. All right. And with that, let's do it with the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to Mike, Chubby, Colin, Deathkin, and Leon Running Man for joining our recording session today and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And if you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit the Orbital mechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. So that's it. We'll see you all next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody.